This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're going to start by talking again. What are we talking about here? How widespread is this new world of cannabis? And let's start by talking about the state cannabis programs. Right now, by far, the majority of states in the United States have some form of legalized. They either have fully legal marijuana, they have CBD only, medical marijuana. It's a minority of states that really haven't implemented some side of cannabis plan. And this is resulting in extraordinary tax revenues. The tax revenues from this new world of cannabis are outstripping the sales tax by, it looks like, 4 to 5%. So uh, four to five times greater than, excuse me. So we really are talking about a new world, something that can impact the states, the financial status of the states, the budget deficit in states, um, new jobs, new opportunities, farming. And then, yes, of course, it isn't just a recreational product, though certainly in some states such as this, that is a permissible use. Um, but it's also a product that has tremendous, tremendous health benefits and opportunities. And we want to talk about what we do know, what we don't know, and what we can learn. So who wants to, I would like to talk for a minute about farming, just for a second. Talk to me about farming and just what we know. For example, I think when you start the inquiry about finding the product that might serve you, who's your farmer? How is it farmed? How is it distilled? What kind of carrier product, et cetera, et cetera. So let's start from the ground up, as it were. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you everybody for being here today, and I appreciate you putting us on this panel here today. Um, my, I've been farming for myself and growing food as nutrition, uh, food as medicine, and food as energy, all those things for about 35 years. And it was just basically because I was really selfish, and I wanted to grow the best food for myself and my family. And along the way, I discovered pretty much everything is a way of techniques of growing from hydroponics to aeroponics to aquaponics to everything and I finally circled back to my my background in biochemistry and it was soil what, what are we missing and for the last 10 years I've really focused on building the best finest soils so that you actually adopt a new principle called feeding the soil which basically means you put a plant in there and get out of the way the plant's far smarter than we are, so what we need to do is start putting, <clears throat> growing everything we eat, consume, recreationally, cannabis included, and I've spent 90% of my time on vegetables, but 10 years ago got into the cannabis side of it and started doing the research and development and seeing what soils would produce and optimize cannabis plants. So one of the primary things that I focus on is clean cannabis, and that means that the soil can't be contaminated, you have no residual compounds such as glyphosates, pesticides, herbicides, etc. in and that soil. There's a specific reason with the hemp plant, for example, right? Because it really does extract yeah, a, these chemicals out of the soil, yeah. right? Explain that. Hemp is called a bioaccumulator, and it actually accumulates even more aggressively than cannabis. And both hemp and cannabis are from the same family, the cannabis sativa family. And there is a big problem with our soils across the country in that most of them are contaminated. So um, if you understand that if that we're absorbing everything that's in the plant, whether we breathe it, you know, eat it, et cetera, you're storing the same toxins that that plant has access to in your system. And that can short circuit your entire endocrine system, your endocannabinoid system, et cetera. So we're not doing ourselves any favors whatsoever if we're eating plants that are contaminated. Now, bioaccumulators are also very beneficial because they accumulate. 
Now, if it's clean accumulation, that, that's wonderful. And they also move a lot of carbon back into the soil, which is where our problem with climate change exists. So we need Thank to start putting carbon too. back down. That's right. This is, a, this is another issue we've talked about on our panels before, carbon sequestration, ability of healthy soil. And there's a documentary coming out shortly, premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival called Kiss the Ground on that topic. Sorry for the plug. Uh, is there anything you want to add on farming? I know we're going to come back and talk about your research work, too, but I want to just stay on farming for one second. Yeah. Um, well, if our cultivator was here, he could probably get know, all I into know. this. Um, so uh, not to that level, but um, absolutely. Like to meet him. Yes, <laughs> we will make that happen. So. Well, and we also know that the farm bill, right? So mm-hmm. we have a farm bill that finally opened the door toward uh, hemp production. That's different than marijuana production. So if you want to talk a little bit about what the farm bill did in terms of your understanding, in terms of what, what can be grown legally, uh, notwithstanding that certain states have marijuana, you know, completely legal. So we're not dealing with CBD side of the house, but I think just with people that are on that side with the farm bill going through 2018, I would just even say on the marketing side and advertising what you can do with it and you can actually move things into different states and all that stuff where it makes it a lot more easy and more regular business, which we really hope at one point we can get the THC side of the house on the same level as that. Now, I want to you raised something that was sort of next on my idea, because as we talk about you know, marijuana and hemp. Would anyone like to tackle the, what's the difference between marijuana and hemp? And because I don't think that everyone truly understands, or CBD and THC, could somebody want to do sort of the general plant overview for us? Anybody want to handle it? Who or wants I to grab that? Sure, I'll jump in. I mean, my, my background is, is in botanical medicine, and I did some of the early research in echinacea in the 2000s. And using that analogy, you know, it was really difficult to find uh, an echinacea plant that had a well-described um, the constituents in it, the different alkaloids. So hemp and marijuana uh, both come from cannabis sativa uh, as the in terms of their taxonomy. And we can really think about it in terms of, of how we grow our vegetables and what we select for. So some plants are grown to have beautiful leaves, for example, and some plants are grown to have beautiful flowers, right? We can have uh, red roses and green roses all coming from uh, from the same botanical uh, place. So plants that we generally speak of as as marijuana um, or cannabis have higher levels of THC, greater than 3% is the definition that we use. And those are the plants that we generally think of as the ones that have that euphoric effect or that psychoactive effect. Those are also the ones that are regulated through dispensaries and, uh, and sold in licensed dispensaries in California. On the other side of the, the farming continuum, are what we often refer to as an industrial hemp. And these are also plants from cannabis sativa, the same botanical uh, origins, but they've been selected and hybridized to be grown for many things, uh, for fiber, for fabrics, uh, hemp seeds that we, we can eat. Like hemp groats. Exactly, right. exactly, that we put in our breakfast cereal, but also to have high levels of CBD, which we think is um, perhaps the most uh, medicinally important constituent in the hemp plants. Okay, so let's talk about... Oh, go ahead, please. Please So so you mentioned the 2018 Farm Bill. So the 2018 Farm Bill essentially made hemp, just a slight correction, 0.3%. I think you might have said 3%. So anything below 0.3% is an agricultural commodity. And this is intended to put farmers back to work in Kentucky, Wisconsin, North Carolina, to create a new crop and a new supply chain. And when the Farm Bill passed... uh, 
actually, Senator McConnell had never even heard of CBD at that point. He was truly thinking of Kentucky farmers, giving them something to grow other than um, tobacco. And uh, what happened is in the middle of, you know, between 2014 and 2000, there was a farm bill that was passed in 2014. Often when you have major legislative changes, you always have a pilot program passed first. And so in 2014, they allowed universities in different places to start growing hemp to see if it could be done. And then in 2018, it basically said, okay, it's no longer a controlled substance. But what's interesting about it is it wasn't just hemp below 0.3% THC, but all of the constituents and everything in it. So now we have a legal agricultural commodity that also has other constituents, uh, CBD and the other minor cannabinoids, as well as a small amount of THC. And so on the legitimate grocery store side of things, we have an opportunity to do hemp extracts that you'll see at health food stores, even CVS, topicals, and that's the business I'm in. And to now have products that are 100% produced in the United States before we relied on foreign hemp, and there was really Excellent no way point. to um, evaluate the supply chain, um, evaluate for quality. There was really no way we could regulate that. So it's actually monumental that we can now do that entire process on American soil. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, it's, a, it's a really important to know, too, that um, both hemp and what I call marijuana or cannabis, that's kind of the way I separated hemp and cannabis, have over 500 active compounds in them. I mean, well over 150 cannabinoids. We talk about two of them, CBD, THC in general. 250 terpenes possibly, then there's flavanols, phenols, and everything. So what makes this plant so fascinating, it's like the rainforest of plants. And we're only talking about a couple of things. We've only researched in depth, maybe 10 cannabinoids, and there's 150, and we're still discovering them. So a new one was recently discovered. The, yeah, the, one. There's one that, if any of you have ever gotten really high on a plant that was supposed to not get you really high, there's a new explanation of what might be going on. There's a little cannabinoid called THCP, and THCP happens to be about 33 times more potent than THC, the activated THC. So. All of a sudden, you might be having a very low THC plant because that's all we test for. Didn't even know that THCP existed until maybe a year ago. But you, you know, somebody takes a hit off of that and you go, oh my God, I'm stoned out of my mind. Well, there's an explanation. So it goes to tell you that we are just learning about this incredible rainforest of compounds in this plant. It's an excellent point. It's very true that, you know, we really are focused on what we can. And, and quite frankly, the, the larger part of research is focused on that which is wholly legal across the United States. So there's a lot of uh, variety there. Um, I want to go back to something you raised when you were first talking, which is now we've talked a little bit about the plant, how it's grown. But the next thing is what you mentioned was the ECS, the endocannabinoid system, the receptors in our body, how we understand what this plant and its various components does when it when it lands in our body. It sounds like something you might be interested in, but if anyone else wants to tackle, tell us a little bit about the, you know, the endocannabinoid system in the body and what we know about this. Um, I think we can probably all yeah. talk about yeah. this in, sure. in, in yeah, detail, time. but um, 
we we know many of our other body systems much more comfortably our hormone system for example or our nervous system or our immune system so the endocannabinoid system is is lesser known but um, plays a, a similar role and the thing that I think really distinguishes the endocannabinoid system is that it's a it's a regulatory system so it interacts with the immune system the nervous system the hormones and serves a big role in uh, in balancing function so if something is overactive um, to keep it not too uh, too technical. If something's overactive, it's going to tamp down that effect. If something is underactive, it's going to stimulate uh, effects. So it's what we call an adaptogen in botanical medicine, and um, and that interacts primarily with the immune system and the nervous system. You can look at the ECS as kind of the control tower, and you have a whole bunch of planes flying around like crazy, and all of a sudden the control tower goes dark. What happens to the planes? So the ECS basically modulates neurotransmission in your brain, and I personally believe that th I think it's the senior system, the senior regulatory system in our body. And as a you know pre-med student 35 years ago, we didn't even know what ECS meant and didn't even talk about it. So here we are talking about something. That's what, Carolyn. You were going to say something. In 1986, that's the when they first discovered that you know that there was receptors. So you only have that little bit of data. And, you know, it also is confusing and where those receptors are is how things will affect you. So, you know, most of the TH receptors for THC are in your brain. Thus, you get, you know, the highness. And the, uh, most of the CBD, most, there are some in your brain, but are below from. So that's why you get this kind of relaxation and um, all the anti-inflammatory stuff. And I want to, I want to, we've sort of been talking a little bit about THC versus CBD, even if, again, that's the oversimplified version. But I know this matters to you, and we've had this dialogue as well, but that we understand, we know more about CBD and what it may work on in the body. But I'd like to have someone talk for just a minute about the, the, that these things ex coexist in the plant, and that there are ratios, and that there's an understanding that if the ratio of the CBD is particularly high compared to the ratio of TVC, uh, THC, even if it's not non-existent, that that impacts what we would call the psychotropic effect. Would anyone like to talk to me just for a second about full-spectrum plant? We have a lot of substances out there that are like this. I mean, if you look at caffeine and all the various forms of caffeine and tea and coffee and the strengths of these things. And so you have this plant, as we've discussed, that has many cousins, and each variety has, has the, produces these compounds. And they're, they're mostly produced as a um, self-defense mechanism against pests and insects and to protect itself from the environment. So everything from the soil to the growing conditions to the genetic variety will influence the exactly how that plant. So it's not one size fits all. Yeah. I think that's a misconception among people who are looking to this for medicinal use. And one of the interesting things, the most challenging thing for hemp farmers right now is if it gets too warm or you give the plants too much nutrition, the THC levels will rise above 0.3% in a lot of varieties. Like sugar in a grape. Exactly, like <laughs> sugar in a grape. And so you have all these farmers that are trying to get into this business, but they have this really complicated thing that they've never had to deal with is, one day I have an agricultural commodity, the next day I have a controlled substance. An illegal farm. You know, and, yeah. and so when you're a farmer, that's just something they've never dealt with before. And so... The, you know, in the 2018 Farm Bill passed, the, the, the rules have just come out in the last six months, and a lot of them aren't finalized, and so people are struggling. A lot of farmers have gone bankrupt, frankly. There's a lot of people that have 
overestimated the potential in this, in this market. And some people think it's a mistake that we're too focused on CBD and we should be looking at other things like hempcrete and you know things that we can be doing with this plant to make it a sustainable part of our US economy. What's happening is everyone got crazed on CBD and the potential and they started growing these hybridized marijuanas that are high in CBD. They're short and bushy, there's no fiber in them and there's no farmers going back to work. And so we really do need to think this through as far as creating a sustainable uh, you know, bifurcated lanes for these different plants in different industries. Well, it's, we're, we're really tiptoeing into this. You know, it's little, you know, first we have medical legal, then we have full legal, and then finally we get some federal acceptance of a certain limited product. And, you know, it's a little wait and see. And little by little, I think we're moving forward. You're right. You know, you're talking about two different things. One is the hemp plant itself and its myriad other uses other than just CBD. And then the other one is the marijuana plant generally and its use as CBD, THC, medicine and any other other things. So we really are, everyone's navigating a little bit of a leg, legislative, regulatory quagmire federally and state by state, but we are moving forward and, and I hope that we're going to find out more and more. We really are on the tip of the iceberg about application and uses of a product which quite frankly has a long time historical use in this country and around the globe on the hemp side and then in terms of understanding what its medical application is. And I want to turn for a second about that about what, we're, what, we, what we think we know. You know, we, I, this is another opportunity. When I said navigating the crossroads, you know, if you look in some places, it sounds like it's the cure-all for everything under the sun. Every time, everywhere, every kind. And we all can probably accept that isn't so. But let's talk about what we do know about medical and health and wellness applications. And you've been a little quiet. You want to chime in here? You're a doctor. Sure. Do you prescribe this for your patients? I do. I do. I uh... I come from the regular medical world. I spent 17 years in the regular system. And, and then I learned when I went, to, I worked at the uh, San Diego Cancer Center, which is now part of UCSD. And I ran a support group for women with breast cancer. And as it turned out, and it took a little while till we all learned it, 25 out of 25 women in that group were using marijuana to get through chemotherapy and radiation and the difficulties. And it, it is difficult to go through those. And the medicines in the regular medical world, the anti-nausea medicines, the anti-angst medicines, the pain, pain medicines, they're, they're, they are not that great. And they're suboptimal. And actually, marijuana did better for these women with breast cancer. And I've gone on. And you could go, I'm a primary care doctor, mostly, and I could say that CBD specifically and has really good effects for a lot of the problems that people have. A lot of their a better solutions in the medications um, for anxiety, for sleep, for nausea, and for grounding. People as they get older. I think the most dramatic case that I saw, and I saw this with Erica, was a, a patient of ours who, number one, was addicted to narcotics, and number two, ha had Parkinson's and could barely get around the planet, and he could barely be okay. And he, with CBD, it was the most rapid reversal. It was quite remarkable, and it, I, I'll never forget it, and I don't know that it's always so dramatic, but he showed us 
thank you, Stuart, that it, the standard medical model, the standard medicines are not really, we're not tapping into our full potential and we're not helping people nearly as much as we can. And anyway, as, as this has gone forward, CBD, THC, and I, I, I appreciate all the work you guys are doing and what you're talking about, but you know, for PTSD, I, I, I want to talk about that because that is, that's primary care, that's medicine, and these medicines, these, whether you call them medicines or you call them whatever you want to call them, they work better and they, they're super helpful and, they're, and it's a better world now. This is a good lead-in for you. I, I do want to talk, have you talk about the work that you're doing with veterans for the VA and, and your specific background and why you got into this business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it was a very interesting phone conversation I had with my parents when I was like, hey, I think I'm going to get into the cannabis and do all this stuff. And, you know, they're like, can you get back into the Marine Corps? I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen. So, uh, you know, off we went. But, uh, you know, the reality where it kind of started with it, it literally started with a joint. Um, we had a deployment over in uh, an area called the Helmand Province in Afghanistan. Some of you guys are keeping up on that. It is a probably the most volatile area within Afghanistan. Um, reason being, they have the Helmand River Valley there. Uh, that is like their lifeline, obviously, water. Um, that also is where they would go and basically throw out poppy and they would cultivate it and turn it into heroin and then they sell it and the Taliban would tax them so it was a big uh, money source for them so it's a very complex uh, situation out there but um, you know we came back from that deployment it was you know I always tell people it's probably the best and uh, you know worst deployment I ever had I mean just you saw the best in human beings and the absolute worst in human beings and uh, you know we lost a lot of good guys uh, during that time but um, you know, I, we all were probably drinking more than we needed to, and, you know, it was just kind of, we're just kind of getting back to being back here in the States, and then uh, a couple guys started getting out of the military. And one guy in particular, uh, Andy, who's part of Helmand Valley Growers Company, he's our cultivator, but he was a Marine Raider with me, and um, he just looked really good one week. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? He goes, you know what, I gave up a fifth of Jack for a joint. And I'm like, Kid, what, what are you talking about? I mean, cannabis was like foreign to us, and you just didn't think about it. And that's when he's like, listen, I, you know, I'm not blacking out. I'm not drinking and driving. I wake up in the morning. I feel great. You know, I'm kind of getting now into cultivating more. So he's like, I'm making a transition from a warrior to a gardener. And we started kind of looking more into it. So we, the first step we did was we started up a, a nonprofit called Bowder Brothers Foundation, where we help out veterans on the uh, you know, personal side with mentorship. We do VA disability claims. Uh, if a veteran needs to go into treatment, we can get them to seven treatment facilities around the country. Uh, we're doing medical cannabis research, and then the last part is economic, where we help find that veteran a job so they have that sense of purpose just like they did when they, uh, they were in the military. And before we really kind of dove into it, we wanted to, on the medical cannabis research side, we kind of wanted to you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and really see what was the government thinking, like what are they thinking, like what do we need to do to help them. Um, so I talked with members in Congress, and they said, listen, you need to go get data, and you need to get it from American doctors. They're like, the days of the veterans coming up here and saying, I smoke cannabis, and I went to war, and everyone else should. He's like, it, bottom line, it's just not moving the dial anymore. I mean, you have people kind of held in, but if you have that data, he's like, that's a whole different story. So we uh, partner up with a firm uh, that's doing our research called Neomedic, um, and they will be, they've been doing this uh, for about 15 years in Israel, and they came over here in Orange County about three years ago. Um, our lead researcher is going to be a gentleman named Dr. Victor Novak. Um, he was at Harvard at one point uh, running their uh, clinical research institute, um, has done a bunch of FDA trials already, and has been part of uh, another medical cannabis research study. 
and we're going to get, uh, basically we have private doctors coming in from American doctors that will provide us our IRB. So literally this week we're finishing up our recruitment protocols and treatment protocols, and then we'll start getting ready for submission for an IRB, which will be a perspective, which is great because then we can market it. Um, but what we're going to do on this first run is we'll take uh, 60 veterans here in Southern California, and we're going to go after the symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress by utilizing medical cannabis and really kind of dial in what strains and what is working best for veterans go back with a little bit more research on that side, grow it, come back out and do a more robust study about 400 veterans. And then we'll finish up with a uh, retrospective study up in Michigan uh, within the next couple of years. And we'll do about 50 vets up there just to kind of validate what we found here. And that's when we're ready to go back front of Congress and say, all right, you gave us our homework. Here it is. It works. Can we get this thing into the VA system? I want to, um, I want to make a note that, you know, we, we, he's talking about smoking cannabis, which is THC, which is really the psychoactive side. So whenever you light cannabis on fire, it changes the compound. And PTSD is one of those I would say diseases that benefits highly from THC. So we're all kind of against THC around here. And through all my research for the last 25 years, THC is as valuable as anything else. And also, yeah, I was going to say, who's against it? Yeah, we were against it. Pretty, pretty pro well, on no, that one. No. Yeah. But I mean, listen. For example, for example, we 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 very we very seldom talk about. See the little A's up there: CBDA, THCA, CB. All those are non-psychoactive forms of the cannabinoids. Delta-9 THC only occurs when you decarboxylate THCA, kicks the A off and makes it Delta-9 THC. Now it'll get you high. Can you define decarboxylation? For decarboxylation is really know. simple. It's a COOH group. It basically kicks a tail off of the molecule of THC, um, THCA, the, the, the tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, which is the form that's in the raw plant. In other words, if you had this badass wedding cake, 30% THC plant growing in your backyard, and it was in perfect flower, and you went out there and you ate a bud, you'd probably get very lightly high. Right. Because most everything is THCA. You'd have to actually dry that flower and light it on fire, kick that little carboxyl group off, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, hell, I'm, I'm stoned. If you dry so it enough and you eat it, yeah. it also So it the works. delivery system yeah. is really, really important. <laughs> You know, through our studies with, with a bunch of neurologists and psych, psychiatric doctors, we found that one-to-one -one ratios with everything in it, in other words, full plant, raw, full spectrum, is where all the benefits are. So think so about me, that. So let me don't, ask some don't of the, condemn THC. Some of the medical care providers again, because this is, this is important. It, it is, we have to understand how, how the plant is made up and where these things that we're talking about are in the plant, how they're activated heat activation, for example. But I would, I'm curious about if, if you, I, I understand you're using CBD only products perhaps, but you are also working with THC, also with folks who have PTSD and other conditions that are similar. Is, yes. is your, what you're finding in your experience with your patients consistent with what he said about the efficacy? I, I find that it, it two things. I knew this was going to be this way. I am the MD, and I have to be careful because we are on a college campus, and there is the youth of America, and brains aren't fully developed yeah. until they're yeah. 25. Thank and you. every lot of people get high in high school and definitely in college. So, and getting high sometimes is okay. I mean, I think it's for health, but for health, the there are a small fraction of 
young people. Mm -hmm. And I went through this with my niece and it's super, there's nothing you wanna do less than spend time with someone who is psychotic and, and that does happen. So it needs, it, 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 that needs to be addressed. Yes, marijuana, I am a full believer that it has medicinal properties, both CBD and THC and the whole plant, and we need to go through it and realize that this is, this is a spiritual plant. This is big, and, and we have to give it its respect. And when, so when we talk to the youth of America or anyone, set and setting matter. People, who you're with, and 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 the, the the way you go into the experience, it can't just be I'm going to get high and then go do this and then run around. It really, we need a time out on life. This is spiritual. This is important, and and that just needs to be known. And that's what I, I, to me, that's the number one message that needs to come out of this is that marijuana is safe. Marijuana is a big part of the future of health and well-being and it needs to be done with the right spirit in the right time in the right place with the right people uh, absolutely I uh, thank you for that because I, I think it's important and I'm glad that you got there you know we're, we're not up here you know talking advocating just firing one up here on stage um, but 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 honestly we are really trying to explore the universe of both the known and the unknown of the medicinal and health and well-being properties but we you know there's very little long-term research about marijuana and THC but we do know that one of the health risks for young people is smoking too young too much too early before the brain yes. is fully formed so you know we really are trying to talk about the universe of where this can be as a, as a medicine but as we all know medicines can do good and do bad and they can be abused and and um, we're talking about quite frankly using these for people with specific conditions who are adults so kids right. we're not saying to um, smoke the marijuana just putting I, it out can there can I make for a, a quick point that um, another aspect of uh, recreational legalization and why it's so vital other than it's fun um, is that um, Recreational legalization paves the way for uh, human rights and social justice initiatives. It is not until it is recreationally legal that we can address the fact that um, we have fancy dispensaries and fun edibles and all sorts of other programs, but there are millions of Americans in jail, um, you know, for marijuana. Or, sorry, I don't, actually don't use that word. Uh, Cannabis-related expenses, and I can tell you why I don't use that word. But um, so that's actually a huge part of the conversation is that as we take all of this with us, we also have to pay attention to that at the same time because, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> I was just sick. It's not coronavirus. They also smoke a lot of weed. Um, <laughs> it's probably more likely the case. But, um, yeah, so that, that's another aspect of the recreational legal. It's not just about having fun and being able to smoke and buy legally whenever you want. It's also about getting people out of jail and back into society. And Thank you. Making that more equitable. So. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I have to tell you, I, I, my background is as a lawyer, and, and I have spent a fair amount of time in prisons. And the number of people that I have met in prison who are there for the, the, the bulk of their 20s to 40s uh, for nonviolent crimes related to marijuana is astounding, and it's a travesty. Oh, yeah. And as we, I'm sure some of the people on the stage can speak. I'm yeah, sure I mean, but some of we, us have had brush-ups with the law. So. As <laughs> yeah. we, I, you know, that's a whole other panel. But, um, <laughs> but but look, as we talk about the possibilities for medicine, we also need to remember, as you said, that. 
as we make this more legal and appropriate and our understanding changes about the positives of this plant that has been so stigmatized. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about working with cancer patients, my foray into truly understanding this from as a medical prob- product was when my parents were going through cancer treatment and my mother was suffering all of those symptoms of chemotherapy and they were giving her the heavy pain medicine and the heavy other drugs and they didn't work well with her at all. And so I did my research, found a product. It was an edible. I took it to her oncologist. We walked through it all. And my mother said to me, but I'm not a pothead. And so, you know, there's a there's a stigma on so many sides of this dialogue. And we need to get it out of that stigma. We need to be cautious about criminalization. It's really interesting you mentioned that because I've talked to a lot of um, different policymakers and we definitely have a breakdown in a system with, with physicians who are comfortable recommending, and they make the recommendation, and then the patient is left to navigate the selection of product. 100%. And in a lot of the environments for these patients, if you're, you know, you're, you're a little older, you're sick, you got MS, you got cancer, going into a dispensary is not like a, a typical experience for them. And so I've, I've met a lot of people really trying to... Um, bridge that gap for people and make it an experience where they feel like they're not just thrown into the wild west and someone is helping them select something that's right for them and i'm going to say one more thing is a lot of this discussion about what's right for them is so highly individualized because everyone's endocannabinoid system is very different and we have like caffeine you know some people a tiny bit of caffeine and they're jacked some people a lot of caffeine no problem very similar with both CBD and THC. Thank you. Yeah, Carolyn, I, wanna, I want you to talk about that because I actually had someone at my house yesterday for an art gathering, and he's 88 years old, and he needed the product for his wife's post-surgery knee pain, and he said, you know, the doctor said, go get some CBD, and he went and tried to look around, and he was completely overwhelmed, didn't know what to buy, bought something that didn't work, and so, you know, he thinks, well, this is just a bunch of hype. But you, you actually work at a dispensary. Tell me about and yours. That, that's really how ours was set up originally Columbia Care is really medical in every other part of the country. Um, We are recreational, but we have a medical um, kind of focus just because of that. I think it just is not just licensed dispensaries either. I think that people go originally onto the internet and they start to Google. And I've had people that paid $300 for a CBD tincture. And I've had people that had all these other things. And they think they have no idea either that it doesn't work because, you know, they got this product that really wouldn't work um, or it's too much or they didn't really understand it. So they stop or they go into a licensed dispensary and they have a 22 year old bud tender say, God, this got me whacked out last night. That'll work on you too. And then they go home and they get completely whacked out and they said, I never want to touch this again. So that is the most, one of the most important. We were, Rachel and I, we were having a discussion about how this all comes down to a 22-year-old telling somebody what, and the little bit that the rep told them about the product, oh, this will work for you. They have no idea. So that's really why this, our dispensary really works so well is because even though it's sometimes over medical for some of these people here in California that we uh, that's what our focus is because it is so important and you know one of the reasons I want to make a I want to back that point yeah know your medicine know how it's grown get a certificate of analysis on it THC is not our enemy with a balanced amount of CBD you don't get high I work with a whole bunch of 70 60 70 year old top doctors and if I ever got one of their patients, they refer to me because a lot can't refer 
and don't want to risk their medical license doing that. If I ever got their patients high, I'd be in deep trouble. So I've actually learned how to deliver full-spectrum cannabis with lots of THC, lots of CBD, and everything else in a form that doesn't get you high. It changes the game. It heals you. It doesn't get you high. So don't, don't be you know, so fast to condemn THC and all those other chemicals. Understand what they all start to do, and there's a lot of information out there. And what's you can important use. for that one is is that you can only get that in a licensed dispensary here in California. Right. We cannot sell hemp-derived right. products, the ones that have zero THC. Exactly. So if you're looking for that, you don't go on the Internet and think you're going to find it, right? Yeah, and I mean, what I wanted to add is I get asked about dosing constantly, and there's just not, it's very individualized. There's not one size fits all. Back to the caffeine thing, you know, for me, three milligrams, I'm good. And then we have former medical patients that are trying to buy in the recreational market that still would like 1,000 milligram products that we can't make anymore, um, and they can't, they can't feel anything from 100 milligrams. I mean, so. the, the place yeah. where it all starts is with quality, right? We have to know and hold all companies to the standards of reporting what exactly is in their products, and that starts with growing quality soil, organic soil, going through the, the expensive steps for growers to certify each step of the way and have those analyses in place. So when I was developing, you know, the products for my brand, you know, quality was the absolute most important thing. We have to start with a pure, potent, organic product. And from there, then somebody can decide whether it's an appropriate product for them or it gets the results that they're looking for. But if you're starting off with something from the gas station and you're not even sure if it has CBD in it, that's certainly not going to give Even you a... Even if it a, says it nine times out of ten. There are studies that bear that out. It's just it doesn't not going to give you an experience. Well, this is what happens, right? Yeah. When, when suddenly something gets, you know, becomes legal and becomes popular, there's always a rush. You know, we saw it with other fancy food ingredients. We see it with everything. And so now there's a, there's a huge surge in the market of, of products that are CBD. And yeah, you can get them from the gas station, the drugstore, the farmer's market, and, and the, just everywhere in between. And then you have that gap that we're talking about, which is a horrific gap from the doctors who now are willing and, and, and interested in prescribing to their patients, but who literally don't know which product is good. And I have to say, I have a lot of doctor friends who call me, and I don't know the answer, but I actually call Carolyn, who has a medical background, and say, this doctor is looking for the right product to refer for their patients. And so there's so many gaps there. That's the doctor who's unsure of what which one works, because not every doctor is doing oh, what I you do. I get those calls, too, yeah, from sure. patients and doctors, and I'm like, you don't want to ask me. <laughs> so <laughs> like, I know I one thing that could be helpful for the audience is for CBD products that are being sold in uh, health food stores, there's a law in Indiana that says you have to put a QR code on the front of the label, and that QR code goes to a third-party analysis of the cannabinoid content and heavy metals. And because it's required in Indiana, a lot of companies like mine have just kind of said, well, we're going to put a QR code. It goes to all 50 states. Another little thing to be, to be mindful of is um, OEHA. I'm not going to try to get all the letters of that one, but the Prop 65 folks have just determined that THC is a reproductive toxin. And so all marijuana products starting in May... Well, Delta, Delta 9 THC. Delta 9 THC. Not THCA. 
at this point, at right. this point. But but we're gonna your your marijuana products are gonna have that typical California Prop 65 label. This product has been known in the state of California. Blah blah blah. So. Um, that's going to be interesting. You know, you have all these people going to buy their medicine and it's going to say this That affected my business a lot. Um, when we had to start labeling for that, we would get calls all the time like, this is supposed to be good for us, but it has this cancer warning. What's this? But the thing is, I mean, you can buy sunglasses at the grocery store that have that. And that's my, kind of my analogy. I'm like, yeah. don't, it's fine. You walk into a hotel, yeah. every single one has Yeah, the I mean, it's everywhere yeah. here. But If it hasn't been third party lab taste, tested, do not. And then you had asked about PTSD, and, and we we sell a up. Oh, yeah. Applause for the third yeah. party analysis. Yes. <laughs> well, just to understand one basic thing about cannabis, what's so fascinating, it has the power to take compounds directly um, from you know from a joint or anything else you smoke. It goes right to your brain. It also piggybacks. We talked about bioaccumulation. If it's loaded with any pesticides at all. You just drove them right into your brain. They didn't go through your GI tract. There's no breakdown, no digestion. Think about that. You just wiped your brain out. It's interesting. So. We were talking before the panel because we typically are here talking about food and, and, and food and health and environmental impact and community impact. And really, it's the same dialogue. You know, know your farmer, uh, know the process, know it's the extraction method. What's that? It's an agricultural product. Absolutely. Same as eating c- contaminated vegetables. Would you eat broccoli with glyphosate on them? So we've talked- but, 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 I, but I think I think what's happening too. You got to be careful because you're going to see a lot of people testing products, and this happened to my company, and they find trace amounts of heavy metal that are below you know parts per billion. So this is tenfold less than your organic corn, or you know. So there is there are heavy metal and trace amounts of toxins in every single thing we eat. And when you make an extract, if you do it right, you're able to lower those levels and test for them. It doesn't mean they're absolutely not there. And so don't be alarmed if you read something in the news that says, oh my God, all these great companies had trace amounts of these chemicals in their product. It's just a slam job. Well, it's but- parts per billion versus parts per million. Parts per billion doesn't hurt us. Generally, parts per million, you start got to look at it. But what, you know, what we're, this sort of you know, dialogue that we're having up here really does demonstrate this new, unchartered, largely unchartered territory of regulatory oversight of all of this and every time we, there's a new avenue for relief then there's a new then it becomes popular and then it becomes a money product and then there's new regulation and then you know cycles back to point a so you know we the all of these things are slowly getting worked out but it definitely pops up here and there and then suddenly no this is dangerous we'll know only in this dynamic and finding that good information is sometimes hard I, i'm curious if the folks on the panel would like to give their best idea in terms of publicly available information. Like, where would you tell clients or people in the audience, the elderly veterans, if they're not just talking to you and picking up the phone, where do you think one can find good information about hemp, marijuana, CBD, THC, and all the other little CBs and GBs that are up in the plant that we're not talking about? So. <laughs> really, and I, I hate to project sell it. Project CBD.org. I was going to say Project CBD. That's yeah. going to be my answer. Excellent. Yeah, projectcbd.org. Anyone uh, Mar- else? Martin is a close friend of mine, and boy, he, he's got everything on that site that you'd ever want. I mean, you, you'd be on there for hours, but it's got really understandable and searchable you know, terms that can really bring you into the, and I, I'm not going to say CBD 101. I'm going I'm to say whole, whole plant cannabis 101. 
because we really have got to stop saying CBD and then talk about THC. It's not just about CBD, but that's how the big buzz became because McConnell decided to support Kentucky farmers. Um, and hemp is high, higher in CBD and lower in THC, so all of a sudden the CBD craze exploded. But it's not just about CBD. There's 500 compounds in there that we've really got to start looking at. That we're just learning about just learning in, in about. large. Go ahead. Yep. I mean, the most authoritative source is always going to be going to the original research, you know, looking in PubMed. And I think for all of us as educators, you know, being able to translate the, the research studies and not just the abstracts, but actually looking at the data and the figures and the methods and the doses and then translating that information for our, our friends, our patients, our lay population. I mean, that's really what we need to see more of is, is more um, science fluency, right? And really people directing people to read and understand the research. And I mean, ironically, I'm a fan of the combination of THC and CBD as well, but if we look at what's actually FDA approved, right, as Epidiolex, which is a CBD-only product, um, ironically for use in children, right, for intractable epilepsies. So it's a very complicated world of, you know, what is going to be best for an individual has a lot to do with, um, with what they're seeking it for. And in the space of, of wellness and thriving and simply feeling well, which is where my passion in medicine uh, is, you know, the CBD products are fantastic for that. Right? They can really be very, very potent in uh, calming the anxiety, as Mark was talking about, helping people feel more grounded, helping them feel just a better version of themselves because that endocannabinoid tone is being improved. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. No, it's very means. individualized. It's, we've got to actually customize drugs for almost everybody. I mean, really, you all metabolize differently. So. Yeah, the risk of being too subversive also, I would say the place not to go at this point in time for information, honestly, is um, would be government entities. They're woefully behind in misinformation. The terminology they use, their understanding, I mean, you know, uh, as it's classified, marijuana is still a Schedule One drug, which means it has no therapeutic or medical benefits, I believe is the definition, which is ridiculous because you also have medicines approved by the FDA on the market, so that actually doesn't make sense. Um, so at this point, the private sector is significantly ahead in that respect, and I expect it will remain that way for quite some time. We didn't really delve in too much yet, and I'd like to a little bit with some of the folks here who actually have been engaged in research on CBD or the properties or the medical benefits of. Does anybody want to chime in just a little bit about what we do know specifically? We talked about PTSD, uh, and maybe tell us a little bit more about what we know about pain, cancer, and we so do on. Know it works for post-traumatic stress. Um, literally, Neomedic, um, we were on a phone call with a very high-ranking VA official or former VA official, and he just asked bottom line, he goes, does this work? And they were like, it does. They're like, we've done everything from Israeli Defense Force uh, soldiers to Holocaust survivors. And he's like, can you prove it? He goes, it's in MedPub. We just published our findings, what we're doing. So we know it works now. We just kind of have to prove it here through kind of the hoops we got to go through that, yeah, this is a viable option over the opiates. So my company, CV Sciences, we sell a hemp extract with uh, lower amounts of CBD um, at health food stores. And we did do a case series in PTSD that we published. And we found just in, in when you added it to the standard of care, so these people were being treated by psychiatrists in an outpatient psychiatry clinic, we saw significant improvements. Now, this is just a case study. So, you know, what's next is a, a randomized controlled trial. Um, 
I think you know what we have to understand is what what has driven a lot of our understanding of CBD was the drug approval process. One company about 30 years ago said we're going to make drugs out of marijuana, and this company is GW Pharmaceuticals, and they have Sativex, which is a one-to-one drug that's legal all over the world for different types of pain, and they've also have Epidiolex, which they have recently approved in 2019 for the intractable seizures. And so whenever you have a drug approved, you have 30 years of doing clinical trials and publishing them. So people have been reading their literature and seeing the mechanism of action, seeing how the endocannabinoid system works, seeing how, I mean, this is 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams of CBD. So they're really giving it like a drug. And that's really opened the ideas of what else it could work for. But there is very, very limited evidence that we have at this point. PTSD, there's not a whole lot published out there other than our stuff on CBD. Um, but what we, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, because you have to remember, this has been a controlled substance for the last 70 years, so it's been a pain to research it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happens in D.C., I'm from Washington, D.C., and we have all these panels, these summits on cannabis and the evolving changes that are happening, and we always have these researchers from University of Washington that get up there and they're like, I am so frustrated. In order to run a clinical trial, I have to get a DEA license, I have to do this, I have to do that and they only allow them to buy marijuana from a single source at the University of Mississippi. So you imagine that, you're in Boulder, you're in Boulder, Colorado, you got dispensaries all around you, you're doing a study on MS, you got 50 women, and they're like, here's a joint, and they're like, what? I can walk down the street and get a gummy, a vape, I can get anything I want. You want me to smoke a joint? You've got to be kidding me. I want a drop, I want something discreet. And so the researchers are totally frustrated, and it's really, hampered how much clinical evidence we have. Uh, And so a lot of Congress is beginning to recognize this, and they're looking for ways to allow this research to take place. And it's phenomenal. Researchers can't touch the plant. So they do these amazing things where they, like, give people money, they let them go into the dispensary, they use the product, then they go into a van, and then they, like, video them for, like, the next four hours, and they can't touch it. We pay $19 million a pound for what the University of Mississippi sends around. That's what taxpayer dollars, that's what it costs for a pound of testable marijuana that's well, this is, So I have a, a good friend who works at the Salk Institute. He's been there for 50 years as a plant biologist studying a, a variety of conditions, and marijuana isn't his primary focus at all in his research, yeah. but he found some comparable between the plants he was studying and some component of the cannabis plant, and he simply wanted to access it for purposes of making a comparative analysis, and he had to jump through all of those hoops that you're talking about. So again, the, we, we have a lot of hurdles to go through before the research can get to the point where we generally accept it as medically viable, acceptable research. But we're on the front end. We hopefully, you know, pointing out the problems in the system will help us hopefully navigate, you know, not just around them, but change them to open the door for more progressive, appropriate scholarship and research on something which I think everyone in this panel agrees has great potential benefit going forward. And yes, we've talked about smoking. We've talked a little bit about edibles. You make high-grade edibles. Then one thing we didn't really talk about, and I'd just like it to be the final point, is sort of the delivery vehicles that we know of that are available from from edibles to tinctures to topical and so on. And if someone wants to just talk about that for a minute, I'd love to. Yeah, you first. Sure. Well, yeah, I, I have an edibles company, obviously. Um, there's tons of different ways to consume. Um, 
And, you know, I approach our edibles as, yes, medicine. However, you know, it's an enjoyment uh, activity is how we approach it. So um, a lot of it's not health food based. It's brownies and cookies and stuff like that. But um, a lot of our consumers are older patients and they like it because um, sometimes they might have difficulty consuming in other ways and they don't want to inhale smoke. So that's a good way for them. And it's also discreet, right? So uh, there is still a lot of stigma attached. So people can carry a little chocolate or gummy and nobody knows what they're doing and it's good for them. So um, yeah, there's countless different ways to consume. What whether... people forget is there are also good ways that, like what I used when at hospice suppositories. Yep. There's sublingual, there's patches, there's many different ways that you can get, and they're all like, you know, suppositories are one of the best ways. They bypass the GI tract, they don't have to go through your liver. So anything, I really think anything that bypasses your GI tract, especially if you're an old, older person that may not have, is, is usually a, a good idea. Um, it's why I'm excited about the transdermal effects, you know, back to where the science and the research are really pretty exciting. I mean, I think the dermal effects are some of the most exciting things we're Patches, seeing. Patches, creams. Patches, creams, both for, you know, for everything from acne and bullous pemphigoid to getting a good transdermal absorption, similar as we would for bioidentical hormones, so you can get a higher dose into somebody. But, um, I mean, it has effects from everything from re-stimulating collagen to you know, minimizing your, your cancer pain when it's used transdermally. I wanted to ask about that. You said bypass the GI. Is that specifically so you don't get that four-hour delay? Well, it's that. It breaks it's also, it down. It's acidic it, and it changes There's lots, it. Of, lots of research that don't. it shows that we don't know how much is left after it goes right. through the GI tract, through the portal vein, through your liver, and gets metabolized. And everyone's GI tract is totally Because well, I know, I know in, you can't control absorption. On the policy side, one of the big fears with edibles is this notion that you consume it and then you have this delay of being sober and then it, this onset that's... I mean, if you, I mean, that's that's what on the policy discussions I always hear. Well, people, that's why there are lots of the new microdosing. They all get absorbed up here, whether they're all completely sugar. You've got the new drinkables that like are that here, and and anything sublingually that you can do. Um, we could. Do you want to talk about some of the more fun ways to consume it? Because that's part of it too. Like, it's not just there. There are other ways. I mean, in terms of smoking, um, combustible vaping. You also have other types of concentrates um, that you can use high heat um, dabbing is, um, I can't believe I'm sitting on the stage talking about dabbing. Here we are. It's 2020. Oh, you little stoner, you. <laughs> oh, absolutely, for sure. Um, definitely. It's why I write about this, right? It's, it's fun and interesting. Um, so that's another way to get a really concentrated... Um, uh, formerly, uh, you would use a blowtorch to do that. It's fairly um, intimidating on the onset, and it looks very intimidating. Nowadays, you have um, electric dabbers that heat, you know, like a ceramic core or something that will heat the uh, the, the concentrate material. Um, also, um, it's becoming a very popular uh, THC products in particular, also CBD. I tend to think that they don't really work. Um, but for sex, for women, um, THC is a vasodilator, so... Um, it um, increases blood flow. So obviously for sex, that's very good. For women and their sexual health, that's a huge deal. So you can take um, different uh, topicals, oils especially. Um, as we know, everything down there is a mucous membrane. So that's how, how that would be applied and absorbed. Um, 
but it works. It's good for women with pain, with, with a, a variety of sexual issues. It doesn't really work for guys, but if you're heterosexual, if you're having sex with a woman, what works for her works for you. So, um, <laughs> right? Um, so those are other ways of, you know, there, there are many ingestion methods. But no, but these are very popular, and especially among boomers who are starting, you know, maybe to have some issues. Um, it's huge for that. So there are a lot of fun ways to ingest it as well, um, you know, just beyond the stuff that the, the other ways that are more medically applicable. Again, it's tip of the iceberg, but yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, let me make one more point about the GI, because so you can take a non-psychoactive form of cannabis. In fact, they're all raw organic acid forms and even some a little tiny bit of THC that's been activated. And if it is absorbed sublingually, you basically are going to be able to dose it very precisely and deliver exactly what has been measured in there to yourself without it changing. It goes through the GI tract. That's actually a decarboxylation point. It's almost like smoking it. So your gut actually breaks it down and does that little decarboxylation. So any THCA, which is a powerful anti-inflammatory and non-psychoactive, becomes delta-9 THC as it passes through your gut. That's why edibles sometimes take an hour because they got to get digested and then wing. You know, you're high and then you're high for like eight hours because you didn't realize what dose you took. So you've got to be very careful about any type of edible. So when we're talking about any of these cannabinoids, just from the science perspective, I think it's worth remembering we're talking about fatty acids, right? right? Like your fish oil or your flax oil or your other omega-3s. So any of these cannabinoids have to have, you have to have adequate uh, other fats coming in with it, which is why most of the oil tinctures are in oil as opposed to being alcohol extracts, right? And those fats, whether they're the the other omega-3 fatty acids are great for our brains and for overall health. So there is that component of so, it as well. So it's so obvious that this group of people or any one of the people on this stage today could talk about this for hours and hours on end. And there is even a disagreement or a different perspective of the good and available information that is there and what we do and don't know. And I hope that um, we've helped provide some information today for those of you in the audience and those of you watching on TV. Uh, We will keep the dialogue going on the Berry Good Food Foundation's website and on our social media, hashtag and Twitter specifically, hashtag BGF High Hopes, because I would like to, and I hope that I can encourage all of our panelists to engage as well, because it doesn't sound like there is, just as as is the case with healthy eating sometimes, there's a singular good source to go to to answer all of these questions. but I hope that we can keep the dialogue open. I'm confident we're going to move forward on this. And I want to thank all my panelists for being here today. Thank you so much. Now, I'm coming back. Okay. People who smoke regularly, daily, or multiple times a day, I think always have a chronic cough. It can be irritating. I don't think it's associated with lung cancer, and I don't really think it's associated with emphysema, but, I mean, smoking on a regular basis is irritating and will create a chronic cough. And no amount of particulates in your lungs is good for your lungs of any kind, so it's not good for you. But well, so what about the vaping? Because I'll oh, yeah, go ahead. second that on the on the smoking and the high use populations, the Rastafarians in Jamaica, they have been studied over their high smoking history, and we don't see higher rates of lung cancer. So I mean, it's just interesting fact. You don't see higher rates of lung cancer, but you also that's because 
cannabis is very, I mean, there's a little patent filed in 2003 the United States government owns. So if you've not read this, go back there and just Google 2003 United States patent, and you'll see that it says anti-cancer, neuroprotective, blah, blah, blah. Of course, the other side of our government says it's not worth anything. Aren't, you ask, aren't they on the same team? But anyway. Mark, you were going to say I am something. sorry. I'm itching. So <laughs> back to the question, who's the best expert? Where do you go? Because this audience, I mean, that, you know, we've got lots of opinions. There's, I appreciate all of it, the research, the growers. And in my mind, Andrew Weil is the number one expert in the world. And he, the book, From Morphine to Chocolate, is an incredible book that, and it's not just about marijuana, it's about all drugs, hallucinogens, and, and, and pharmaceutical medicines. And anyway, I think he's the leader. That's a really good place to start for parents, for people who wanna really understand what they're getting into, which I want them to do. So you asked about vaping. One of the issues, vaping, we don't know yet. We don't have enough longitudinal, longitudinal data to really see if it's different than smoking. But we have had some incidents where people have put creative preservatives, mainly vitamin E acetate, in the vape cartridge. This was done in a um, non-sanctioned way, so these were black market vape cartridges, and those cause some nasty lung disease. And so we need to be mindful of you know what we're putting in these liquids right. and, and where yeah. it comes from, and, and, and not get creative. I mean, that's where. We're going to see a hyper intersection between, you know, actual regulation because what's happening in Washington, D.C. is like in, in the Journal of American Medical Association, some staunch anti-marijuana physicians wrote a paper that said the only way we can save the youth from marijuana is to legalize it at this point. And they were pointing to some of the advertising practices of the industry because it's unregulated, they're doing things the tobacco industry did, you know, before it was regulated. You know, marketing tailored towards children, flashy sports stuff. And so we're going to see people in D.C. say, look, enough is enough. We need to start putting some reins on this. The dab thing, a lot of states are saying, look, pot's pretty safe. But when you dab, you get a thousand times the blood level of THC. So you're just... Kaboom! And if you're THC naive, you can just yeah, be... Yeah, you're, you're freebasing Yeah, so, so some states are starting to say, look, we got to put a control on these concentrates. We're all for, you know, 30% THC, but this 75% THC, that's a little different. So. Well, in high school, all pot had about 5-6% THC in it. I mean, we've bred out the CBD and all the other constituents and gone for the high THC as farmers because that's what's sold. Medical marijuana used to be get-high marijuana. You didn't think about healing anybody with it. Where can I get the stuff that gets me the highest, fastest? And that's been the medical marijuana industry in California since 96. So we've got to get away from that. My name's Randy. Uh, I've actually been working in the Nevada cannabis industry for the last uh, three years, um, which uh, here in the United States has one of the strictest uh, testing uh, regulations. Uh, the gentleman on the left mentioned uh, uh, the COAs, you know, just the lab results, third-party lab results. Um, one thing we've noticed in Nevada has been more so a focus on terpenes. And there was a great infographic that was up there. Um, me coming to visit family in California, I always uh, find myself in this position when looking for my medication. I've been a, a medical cannabis user since uh, the early 2000s, um, trying to find uh, terpenes and terpene information through these COAs in California pretty much hinders and limits people's ability to kind of cater towards the strains they should be specifically looking towards. 
I'm just kind of curious, is there any move here in California to kind of focus more so on the hundreds of different terpenes we're, we're now discovering and how that's going to be implemented on the recreational level? Few people, are, few people are talking about it, but terpenes are as important or more important in my opinion. They're the volatile organic compounds that make marijuana smell like marijuana. And there's two especially that I think are actually dominating most cannabinoids in reduction of anxiety. And one is pinene, which is found in pine trees. The other is linalool, which is also found in lavender. So if you study Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese herbalism, you'll see that all those compounds actually exist in nature. Cannabis is fascinating because it has all of the, you know, yeah, hundreds of them. Yeah, you but terpenes are critical. Yeah, you mentioned linalool, and well, you can find that in lavender. And you have, you know, everyone with lavender candles and baths. Uh, myrcene, which is one of my favorite terpenes, you can find that in mango. Um, terpenoline, like I'm a writer as well. Terpenoline, anti-cancer, big things. Time. Yeah. Uh, I highly suggest everyone take a look at terpenes. So that's the, definitely one a- of the issues with terpenes, as you said, they're highly volatile compounds. So it's very hard to standardize and set specifications and get consistent levels of terpene production. And we also don't have a direct link from different cultivars to different terpene production. So what you're, what you're desiring in a product uh, may in fact not be so easy to do unless you take these terpenes externally, and this is probably what people are doing that are selling to you. They're getting linalool, they're getting other terpenes, and then they're adding it back to an extract, and so that's, um, not, that's... Not exactly, not exactly. If I yes. interpret your question right, you're asking why aren't people testing for terpenes? Um, well, and showing that information up front equal to cannabinoids, yeah, like is it, that what you're saying? Yeah, because in a dispensary in Nevada, you could take a look at the top three terpenes from strains, concentrates, vapes. It has the strictest testing. Well, it's a standard US. test. You can do it. Yeah, yeah. So, so it is standard. And then when you take it to the dab level, as a dabber myself, I have to say, um, there are people... I've worked with the medically focused dispensary. Um, People who take a look at those terpenes and actually specific drive, look for those in the strains, look for that in the topicals. and A lot of, of those people are is, also adding terpenes back into the process. Yeah, there yeah. are, but then there's the pure cannabis terpenes, the people who actually know the strains, know well, which ones are heavy. Well, beta humulene, and all those are yeah. incredibly important. Yeah, right. it's incredibly important, but yeah, I, I would have to say... Check your COAs and definitely buy stuff that's been lab tested because there's plenty of people that, you know, don't. That's it. Yeah, the discussion on terpenes also um, is sort of upending the um, indica sativa dichotomy, which is increasingly falling out of fashion. Um, There is no real way to actually tell what you have as a so-called indica or so-called sativa. It's actually completely based on somebody sniffing it, smoking it, and saying, oh, this makes me feel this way. We're labeling this strain as that. Um, so a lot, and, and I'm, I'm drilling it down for, you know, getting it out there and, and time and everything. So that, and, and terpenes is a big part of that, like talking about the terpene profile, how they may affect the body, the mind. Um, that's increasingly subverting talking about strains and cultivars in that kind of way. Yeah, in terms of COAs, I, I did want to mention, I still hate the idea that edibles are like, you don't know what you're going to get because we have the strictest testing. Um, if you get a generic drug, it's a 20% variance below and above. For us, we have a 10% variance. So it's we you know what you're going to get, and the testing's on there. And in terms of, you know, um, I worked in restaurants before, and when we first started, we didn't have as stringent text, uh, excuse me, testing as far as... Um, pesticides and stuff like that and then in our cookies we used lemons and lemon zest and 
we had to stop using those lemons, the same ones I would use in a restaurant for any dish or you would buy at the grocery store, and we couldn't use those lemons anymore because it pes pesticides. Um, so it's very, very strict, and um, I just want to clarify, because I think I hate the stigma of edibles still, because people are still scared, and you don't have to be scared. And once you learn how your body reacts to it, as long as you're getting a properly dosed product, you can very much gauge how that's going to be. Like, her products, for example, I've written about them a million times. I use them. I buy them. They are exact. They're perfect. I know exactly what I'm going to, if I'm going to take this or that. So it, edibles have been, have been drilled down, and there are people who are doing them properly, as long as you learn how they work with your body. With your, your body. That's right. It's very And you have to take into account, does somebody have leaky gut? Do they have Crohn's disease? Do they have other things sure. that are going to impair? Are they taking an antacid that's going to right. block their digestion? There's a lot of factors beside what you put in your in your pastries. Or, so a gene, or a gene that blocks the absorption of TSG. Sure, yeah. all of those. Next question. I see so, I see people there, just shadows. So, <laughs> I can't tell. Hi. Um, so, oh, Wendy. Hi. So um, this is mostly directed towards Rachel, but anybody can chime in about edibles. Um, so the whole process of creating edibles has changed enormously over the years. I mean, no longer do we chop up our leaf and stick them in some cookies. So the process of where you're getting the, the cannabis from, the is it a tincture? Is it, I think it's a little different than for other cannabis products. So, so if you could talk a little bit about that. And then also, I know that I have found, and I think a lot of people have found that I can have the same edible any number of times, but depending on what I've eaten recently or something like that, it might affect me dif differently. So is that just my imagination or is that? Yeah. Um, so when we first started our company, we did use a full <laughs> spectrum oil. Um, but for us, as we evolved, uh, people didn't really like the taste of the full spectrum oil, and it does have an immense more benefits than distillate, which is what we use now. Um, and speaking to the indica sativa thing, another thing that I want to clear up since I have the time here in front of you is we get all the time asked, like, what kind is this sativa or indica? And a lot of edible companies use distillate like we do, and by that time, those different benefits are pretty much gone. Um, so some people still do use can of butter. Um, there are a few companies out there, but for us, we use distillate because of the taste. It's a lot better for most people that want to consume edibles. They don't want to taste super weedy stuff. Um, and then the dosing is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, it took us a lot of R&D to get it exactly right. So we weigh all of our cookies within a half gram. All of our uh, jellies, everything's within a half gram variance in weight. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky. Like, yeah, I wouldn't, making edibles at home is kind of a crapshoot in some ways and can be scary. Um, but when you're purchasing them through people that have had to go through rigorous testing and go through the hoops to do everything, you do know exactly what you're going to get. So, and yes, and as far as, you know, the, the effects, it definitely depends on, you know, again, who you are personally, your system, how much you've eaten, 
etc. The same it would with alcohol. You know, you could have a cheeseburger and then have two drinks. It's not going to be the same as you do it on an empty stomach. And what were you going to say, Erica? You you had something, I think, maybe to. Oh, I think we are back to just appreciating the uh, the complexity of plant medicines. Back to the terpene conversation, right? We, I think we would like to. Um, the science just isn't there yet, right? We would like to attribute a lot of specific benefits to all of those, and I fully believe that individuals who have experienced that for themselves know what works for them, but I just don't think we have the, the research and the science to really say a whole lot um, of substance about terpenes or the other constituents. Does that answer your question, Wendy? Great, thank you. Okay, yes? we, we've received a lot of uh, information today. Is that Joe? Yes, hi. Okay, Joe, um, come on down. I wonder, maybe the doctor or anybody on the panel can answer, uh, as far as, let's say we have insomnia or anxiety or back pain, and we want to go online and determine, you know, get some good, solid information, what we should experiment with. Are there any favorite websites or resources online that you would recommend, anybody up there? And then, uh, as, a, as an afterthought, if you want to address the hemp issue, we have a good friend at Dr. Browner's who says hemp is going to be bigger than cannabis, ultimately. Uh, in all kinds of products, plastics you can make out of hemp, uh, building materials, all food products, clothing, obviously. So I was wondering if you had an opinion on that, anybody? That's it. So first, any more websites or informational portals? I send a lot of people to um, cbdoilreview.org. It's run by a, a local guy here. He's the first to really advocate for putting COAs online. So that's a pretty reputable source to find um, stuff in the marketplace. I, th I think a really good resource to that, like, I mean, it's so obviously such a young market, but I, you know, like what they do at Columbia Care, I mean, go in and meet with yeah. dispensaries that do actual consultations and can have, you know, you're sitting there talking to another human being, not who is this person behind this, uh, the internet that I'm looking at. I mean, that's what I always tell people. If you, you don't know what's going on, go in there. They'll, if they know what's happening, they're going to probably have you do microdosing, kind of bracket you in what's going to work, and then you can kind of go from there. And yeah, I think on the hemp side, I mean, it's it's going to be big. I mean, I don't think a lot of people understand the history of hemp with our country. I mean, literally, you could pay taxes with hemp. I mean, Jefferson smuggled hemp out of England so we can kind of break away from Europe and everything like that. And I think there's going to be a lot of possibilities there with what's going to happen with hemp to use things alternatively than what we use right now. So I think there will be a big market on that side, absolutely. There's 25,000 things you can make with hemp at least. And in the 1930s, we were the largest hemp producer in the world, the United States was. Sorry, I have some very strong opinions about going into shops and getting opinions because we have to remember these are still businesses, right? And so, sorry. Uh, but these are still businesses, right? And they might get paid for shelf space or them, their personal employees might have different relationships with different vendors. Um, so you might get one answer at one store and a different answer at another store. Also, it's a retail store. job for some people. Yeah. They're not you necessarily know. invested in making this their vocation. I think it's they good, like, cleaning that up. You've got to be specifically, like, like I said, with the Columbia Care, yeah. that or like Cannabis Works up in uh, Santa Ana, they do very similar things. But what Carolyn said earlier, her experience, or as she described the experience for many people going in and talking to a 20-something yeah. who doesn't have your exactly. life experience. And, and, and preferably, you know, someone like Carolyn who has a medical background yep. who can help exactly. guide you. And or I, a doctor. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say that in the licensed states, you are seeing a lot of clinicians that are specializing in the area. So... Back to the question, obviously, if it's a serious medical condition or an autoimmune condition and this person is really 
considering in part of this their treatment, it's worth you know a couple hundred bucks to sit down with a licensed physician and say, hey, look, here's the drugs I'm on, here's my prognosis, I want to try this, I want to do it safely. Because there is evidence that CBD interacts with some medications, there is evidence that THC is not right for some people, there is this condition, hypergravitous emesis, where some people get this incredible vomiting situation when they try cannabis, um, and there is occasionally, mostly in young people, issues with psychosis. Um, that's so, sort of as more people are smoking, it appears that some people that are probably um, on their way to psychosis at some point in their life anyway, it's a trigger. No, seriously, this is what the data is looking like, that people are bipolar or something, but they're younger, they haven't shown any episodes, and they dab or do some high level of THC, and it's boom. No, you're 100% right. I mean, that's part of our exclusion for our research that we're doing. If there is history in your family of psychosis, you're not going to be part of this study. And there are contraindications for psychiatric, some psychiatric medicines, very common antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. There have been studies that have shown maybe there are some negative interactions. So the take-home is for sick people, real sick people, talk to a professional. I know 10 of them in, in San Diego that do just that. There's a number of licensed registered nurses that are offering that as a specialty. Naturopathic doctors are a great research source for that. Integrative medical doctors. We're surrounded by them here. Yeah. But again, Project I, I CBD is a very good you know, online the internet resource. Is a I know nice the thing, but I don't think the internet's ready for prime time on this subject. No. I, I think being safe is super important, and finding you, someone you trust, whether it's a naturopath or a nurse, or anyway, there are those people. This is a growing movement, but. Yeah, no, the internet just well, scares me. Any more than me. you would diagnose your medical condition online. You might go there to find some things out. You might, you know, figure out what questions you want to ask the practitioner that you see. Right. However, it's clearly not right. the place to stop. So I guess it piggybacks on the last question that everyone seems to be wanting to find information. Why is the educational component missing? Um, for me, like, there's a cooking school in Canada now that just does cannabis cooking classes. Why are we lacking that here? And why? I mean, is it that the science is lacking? It's and so totally no one illegal. Wants to it's it's totally illegal. illegal. That's, yeah. that's why. Michelle, well, well, yeah. 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 starting the education, getting this out to UCTV. Right. This is this is phase one of education. This is what we can lawfully do. Um, and and as you 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 heard and you saw that the the regulatory landscape is a minefield. And so little by little, as we understand more, as research develops more, as anecdotal and studies develop more, and hopefully the legal arena changes to invite more, we'll be able to do exactly what you're talking about, or somebody will be able to do that so that you can, you know, take this on yourself. But, you know, it's, so much of this is done, you know, behind closed doors, in the dark, under cover of darkness. The number of farmers, growers, practitioners, makers of product that I know who aren't licensed or registered is, is is astronomical. Uh, and they've been doing it for, you know, 35 plus years. So, but they can't sort of overtly, you know, put something out there that may be in a legal, you know, danger zone. And so in time. You know, companies can't really still use the banking system because it's federally illegal. So to even operate a business in the cannabis space requires such a high degree of I mean, you have to be comfortable dealing with cash, all the security problems that come with that, all the logistical problems. So there just isn't the infrastructure. It's definitely not legally supported. I like the idea, though. And as soon as it's, like, safe for you to do it, I hope you do. Yeah. People are doing it privately. People are doing it privately, definitely. I think it's fair to say, too, you're saying, where is all the best information? And you have to remember, we don't have a lot of rock-solid information. 
And we have a whole lot of differing opinions. Like if you just say, you know, is cannabis safe? You're going to have, you know, and you have a thousand scientists in the room, you're going to have completely two different opinions. And so it's, you know, it's difficult for, you know, the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins to put together a website that's authoritative information because we just don't have that much authoritative information. I know the researcher at GW Pharmaceuticals, he says, CBD does not work for pain. I've looked at it upwards and downs. I've, I've, I want, and then I have this whole, I sell CBD, and people are always like, it works great for me, you know? And so you don't have the good information yet to answer these questions definitively, so you have a lot of shysters just saying whatever they want in all different ways, both on the it's dangerous, stay away, it, you know, blah, blah, blah side, and then it's the magical thing that'll cure everything. And the middle ground really hasn't kind of come, you know, to bear yet. The you know? good news is you've just talked about the greatest new job on the planet is to become plant doctors and start understanding this stuff and take it back so that you know what is good for you and really that is the opportunity for what when I speak about job creation every university student that's interested in this ought to start looking at this field you know plant doctor MD my name is Terry Polly I work with Mark sometimes uh, I'm a nurse 44 years I paid my dues working in regular healthcare and now I do cannabis consultations with patients and we do cannabis education at the dispensary I work at but I only work four hours a week because um, they don't I mean it's very difficult to pay a nurse what they're used to being paid at a dispensary so I took a lesser amount because I wanted to get that word out but the difficulty is for um, education is getting somebody to publish it in the paper so you can bring more people in I'm doing a call talk. me oh, I ha- I'm literally gonna, I live on my phone I'm doing a talk at the I'll write at it. senior center on Wednesday but they can't promote it because you can't the say city it doesn't right support cannabis use so and medical dispensaries are not required to hire anybody with any medical training so people need to know that but there is an American Cannabis Nurses Association we have over 1300 nurses uh, nationwide we have nurses in Australia we also have the Cannabis Nurses Network so and that's locally here and across the United States. So there are nurses out there doing voodoo, <laughs> as we call it. When I, when I first started doing massage and they called it voodoo. And so this is another continuation of the voodoo. But plant medicine is really important. And what we do is we teach people, you know, when to take it, how to take it. We can't tell somebody what the dose is because we really don't know. But it's all about microdosing and starting with CBD. Most of them don't want to get high and just following them. So we need to develop that. But we need support from the community that says cannabis is medicine. It's okay to use it. It's okay if you get high. It, you know, it, that's not a bad thing. So, um, but not every day, and that to use it as medicine. So I thank you guys for what you're doing, and let's go green. Thank you.
Is there, is there an American Cannabis Doctors Association similarly? Because my struggle was when I was trying to work with my mother and her fantastic oncologist, and I brought the product in that I had researched with some friends that I knew who knew more than me to her oncologist to find out whether there would be any contraindications, whether this would be problematic, would it be okay for her? And he said yes, but he's not giving it to his patients, even though he looked at it and said, well, that's really great. That, that, let me know how it works. And I, we went back and said, did great. She, you know, she slept, her pain was down, and, and it increased her appetite. Win, win, win. But he's still not doing it because the stigma that's attached to most mainstream medical facilities, even if it's legal in, in this state and others. And, and so there really isn't such an association the same as that, is there? Remember, medicine evolves slowly. So, so right now what you're seeing also is... Also sounds like that would be a hit list, right? Well, like, you're well, is yeah. it, take away your license. In the literature, license, you're your seeing license. case reports. You're going to medical conferences and you're seeing presentations. So the information is starting to get the mainstream medical. They're getting exposed to it. It'll take some time for them to um, digest it. And frankly, um, they're trying to get Sativex legalized in the United States for a couple of different conditions. That's a one-to-one THC uh, CBD. If they get that, I think a lot of doctors will experience the prescription version of marijuana. It's a literally a one-to-one marijuana tincture that's made under drug GMPs. And, and they'll be like, because what they're scared of is all the stuff we're talking about, quality control. I'm a physician, I have a cancer patient, and then only recommending drugs that are made under very, very strict GMPs that are higher than food, higher than supplement. And they're like, I'm just not comfortable with some guy making this in their garage and selling it at a dispensary. It's just not my... I wasn't trained to do that. And so when they have a drug that they have access to, then I think they'll relax a little bit and they'll open up to recommending more. And I just want to add, I'm at, it is, it's a grassroots movement. It's, I, I don't know when it's going to be the right way or the, the good way, but nurses who go out in the world and Terry, and I, I, that, that changes things because it's not just going to a dispensary and getting a product. It's actually having an interaction with the person. Oh, how'd that go for you? And, you know, how are we doing with those symptoms? It's human interaction. So thank you for the slow movement. And research. I want to really bring the point home. It is still very much on all of you to do your own research about where you're shopping, who you're buying from, like, as I hope has been crystal clear. You know? Keep in mind, it's been a grassroots effort for almost yeah. 10,000 years. It isn't necessarily readily available. Like, you have to... Only since the FDA came in and rewrote the rules as it stopped being grassroots. Yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, so I have a question still related to kind of the healthcare field, and I think a few of you touched on it really briefly. Um, but I think it kind of touches all of us because we talk a lot about, like, the opioid epidemic, right? Um, and recovery and how that changes and what that looks like. And more and more in recovery, we're like kind of throwing more pharmaceuticals at these people that are trying to get off of pharmaceuticals. So um, I just, I know we did some talk about PTSD, but I'm just wondering kind of like, is there emerging studies on the efficacy of opioids and recovery and what that kind of looks like, you know, hemp versus cannabis and, and what that kind of looks like in our future? Yeah, I would say with the whole opiate thing, I mean, that's kind of near and dear to me, um, being a veteran, being 100% disabled. And, you know, the VA, they're great Americans and they're doing the best they can, but they only got so many tools in their toolkit. And obviously we have a Schedule One narcotic and they are a federal uh, agency, so there's not much they can do about the cannabis side, but they're very interested in seeing it. 
because they even say they're like, you know, all we got is these opiates and we got money and that's what we're, how we're trying to take care of vets and we know it's not working. I mean, we're losing 22 vets a day due to suicide. And I, mean, and I work with like a lot of vets and actually particularly um, like the more special forces. And it's really this really interesting because one, we, there's stigma, absolutely. So they're super uneducated about it. But even when you talk about hemp, it's very much like from the upper, like from upper command, they're like, nope, don't touch it. Just in case, don't touch it. And so just Yeah, kind of, it's kind of like everything. I mean, I think, I mean, really the best thing I'll, I'll give you an example like say if a football player gets a concussion the best thing they could do to them when they have them in the blue tent there and they're checking them out on the sideline is give them cannabis because it will reduce brain swelling I mean that's what we're talking about I've been hit by a bunch of IEDs before I've been in buildings where we had to blow things up I mean you get a lot of shock blasts coming at you and that is another form of a concussion that you can get so I have traumatic brain injury from it but medical cannabis can help out with that and help out with the healing process. And that's why it just comes back to we need to do our homework. I mean, I'm not going to sit and wait on the government to figure this out. We will figure it out. And what we're going to do here at Hellman Valley Growers Company is we're going to be that bat for the VA so we can knock this thing out of the park and get the veterans the right medicine that they need to help themselves out. So are they moving in that direction then? Well, there was a VA medical cannabis research bill. Unfortunately, Congress was kind of obsessed with a certain president, and now it's an election year. So all that stuff that we thought was going to start getting passed through did not. You know, so now we're like, nothing's going to move in Washington until after the election, basically. So that's why we went forward and did start doing our thing. And that's why it was so important for us to get our institutional review board so we can, no kidding, print in medical journals and have that backed up with evidence. And I think as we kind of start moving there, it's kind of like, you, you kind of see like what the NFL just did with cannabis. Now they're not going to really look at it anymore. If it, well, they kind of start that off with like the XFL and these like kind of younger leagues that, hey, it, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Let's kind of move it into the NFL now. We're kind of looking like, hey, if we start healing veterans with this stuff, why wouldn't the active duty service side say, hey, is this better than giving some guys opiates when they get done surgery or when this happens to them? But we got to do the homework. Yeah, keep in mind the Department of Health and Human Services owns a patent, 2003 filed, that says it's neuroprotective. Look it up. Um, they just also approved a study in Australia where they're going to study um, MMA fighters um, and CTE and uh, cannabis as a mode of healing for that. That I think that was announced just last but, week. But, so some of I, our colleagues have published a couple studies on specifically reduced opioid use in, in people who have chosen to use cannabis themselves. And I don't think it necessarily splices out CBD versus THC, but they have a data set of thousands and thousands of users and have been um, studying the data and publishing results. So they have a, three papers on decreased opiate use when people start well, to Well, because substitute. you look at opiates too, and this is just like a, then you have that whole different stigma of like recovery from opiates means abstinence from everything. So then like it's a whole nother level of stigma that's that a whole you're other dealing paddle. with, right? <laughs> but I think that's a whole other paddle. It should okay. probably that's be said that um, THC is not nearly as potent of a painkiller as an opiate. It's, it, the, the research on it looks like it has a little disassociative. So you disassociate from the pain. You don't necessarily heal from the pain. Uh, it does have this anti-inflammatory and sort of chronic protective effect, this neuroinflammation aspect. So there's interest with uh, you know, football players and people with concussions. But with regard to um, serious, frank, post-surgical pain, um, it's a crapshoot. Some people have to have a high tolerance to use just cannabis, you know, and no. And that's honestly where the CBD is particularly beneficial with those anti-inflammatory properties and the neuroprotective effects. So we have two more questions on the floor, one in the front of the room. Come on up. Hi, I have a question about the environmental impact of growing CBDs, particularly water. 
Um, the things I've seen have often been in a high water area, especially in the Midwest, in the tobacco farms. So I'm wondering what the impact is and, and what the process is or the thought process for going forward as this is a growing industry. You want me to add? Well, first of all, we could probably grow a lot more pot in Louisiana and get rid of some of the floods. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Um, in my opinion, and I've been around it a long time, um, our agricultural system is guilty of a lot of abuses and cannabis cultivation indoors using high intensity lights, high capital, high carbon systems is the worst thing we can possibly do to this planet. Worst. So, sun-grown, greenhouse cannabis, no lighting, etc. Managing carbon, basically. We've all got to become carbon farmers. And in that sense, we become nutrition farmers. And so when we start actually looking at the true carbon cost of everything we do on this planet, including cannabis cultivation indoors, which is incredibly abusive, and especially on all kinds of resources, electricity, which requires coal to make, water, and where's all the, you know, the, you know I mean, if guys are shooting pesticides in there, for example, and that water's being dumped outside someplace, because it usually is, um, we've got all kinds of environmental disasters looming. I mean, so the bottom line is that's a whole other sector that really needs to be regulated, and we've really got to start doing what Dr. Bronner's doing and starting looking at sun-grown or regenerative organic cannabis. So that's a decision we make with our dollar. And that's, that's a lot different what you just explained than your typical hemp farming. Remember hemp? Right. Traditional food fiber hemp is 16 feet tall, skinny, doesn't have any THC. It's a fast-growing crop. It takes very little water, very little pesticides. It's a good it sequesters, cover crop. It's a good cover crop. It sequesters a ton of carbon. We harvest our hemp in the Netherlands. They have a very mature hemp industry. They've been growing. They never made it illegal, so they kept growing hemp as an agricultural commodity. The tractor comes across, takes off the top third. That's used for CBD. For the flowers, used for CBD. The bottom stalks are all used for these other fiber industries, and it's a very. It can be a very. That's why we passed the farm bill. We wanted to get rid of some of the plastics and those things. We've been distracted with CBD, and we haven't put the infrastructure in place for these other industries to develop. But I want to say there, there is still uh, your critique of the indoor farming is is valid, but I do think there is there's areas for improvement in the indoor farming, solar-based electricity, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's not always going to be one-size-fits-all. I agree with you on average if we can grow outside in the sun, but I I think that we can improve the indoor growing as well and make it as green as possible. And I I think it's good to talk about it because it's good to create a product that's healthiest for the person that's, that's growing it, that's going to consume it, but also has, like, the least amount of externalities in the environmental context. I've designed a zero waste carbon negative food production system. It's called Allegria Pharmacy. If you want to take a look at a, it actually incorporates an anaerobic biodigester. So take a look at AllegriaPharmacy.com and you'll see the growing system that I'm recommending that we start looking at. Carbon negative, not carbon Next question, then Bill in the front. Hi, we've talked a lot about how we, you know, ingest CBD. Um, You know, what about putting it on our skin? How is that? How does that you know, is there a lot of research behind that? And how is that affecting us every day? 
Yeah, I mean, we touched upon that a little bit, but the transdermal absorption, I think, is, is potentially the most potent benefit because we skip that first pass effect through the liver when we're using it transdermally. Because we know things like hormones uh, absorb best through, uh, through the skins transdermally, and the body of, of literature on some of the topical uses of CBD, aside from getting a lot of the systemic benefits that we've been talking about, but I mean, it clears up acne, it clears up a lot of terrible inflammatory skin conditions. As an adaptogen that regulates function, it will stimulate sebum production in dry skin, and it will reduce overproduction in, in oily skin. So it stimulates collagen production. It does all sorts of great things. I use a lot of it myself on my yeah. face. And it allows I think you it's to localize. You know, exactly, where, right. You were talking you're about its use with women's I mean, health. I'm a big fan of the transdermal patches. Um, I recommended it to the gentleman who was at my house yesterday for his wife's knee because I've used it for swelling, for bruising, yeah. for a lot of things. And I actually have given it to friends of mine in other states because they really didn't have anything topical. Someone who had just had back surgery and a topical patch placed appropriately was tremendously powerful in reducing their inflammation and pain. And uh, unfortunately, the maker of that particular patch is making them no more. And it is my hope that something comparable will come forward because that is the best product that I've seen in terms of like pain, localized pain. You know, California has a really unique situation um, because of our legislation, um, because of Prop 64, which very personally I was not in support of. Um, even though I do believe, again, legalization needs to happen for the reasons I, I outlined before. But um, the business is extremely volatile, and there's a green rush. And, it, and with any kind of capitalist rush, there are extreme highs and lows. And I don't think the industry has any idea where it is yet. Um, I do know that the um, cost of doing business in California as a, as a cannabis, whether you're a grower or you're you know, producing an end product, is, is prohibitively high. And it's one, probably the largest, one of the largest impediments to the success of the industry, which is ridiculous. You know, we're the seventh largest economy in the world, right? One of, one of those low numbers. Um, we grow the best cannabis in the entire world, historically, presently. Uh, we should have the best cannabis industry in the world, and we don't. It's a disaster. So it's, it's oh, taxes, regulation. Yeah, overregulation is an issue. Um, also, you know, the, the law is structured so that it favors large corporations coming in and sort of Pepsi-Cola-ing it rather than the people who were there at the beginning, the smaller growers, um, the, the, the fines, the fees that they face. Um, so that all affects, you know, stocks in the business market in the end, and it's, it's extremely volatile. Um, you know, this time last year there was of a large, um, there was a lot of access to capital. Now, you know, that's pretty much all dried up. Um, you have a lot of people going out of business. Um, a, you know, MedMen, one of the probably the most famous retailers and one of the most famous ones on the market is, oh man, just Google it. I mean, they're completely in the crap. They haven't paid any of their bills or employees for months. And, and this was supposed to be the future of, you know, the stock market and cannabis and a dispensary, you know, listed on the stock exchange, and it's going completely bust within a year. I think, yeah, and that, that's a great point. I think this year is going to be a very telling year. There are some very large companies that are in some very large trouble right now. And it was interesting. So there was this great movie called General Magic. And if you guys haven't seen it, watch it, because I think it's so comparable to the cannabis industry right now. Essentially, this guy wanted to, back in 1991, he had the design for the iPhone. All right, And he went through all this stuff. It's a whole story, all these people he had to form and bring in. And then when they launched it, the market wasn't ready for it. People didn't want to spend $800. And there were some problems with it. And ultimately, Steve Jobs took it over. And now, you know, these phones rule our lives. 
I think the same thing can be said with the cannabis company or cannabis industry right now. It's just too soon. Where all these people are on their boats and they're like, hey, this is the next dot com boom. I'm going to throw millions at this thing. Well, guess what? Well, we don't have interstate commerce, right? Like what you grow in California, you sell. The sandbox is really small that we're all trying to play in right now, and it's just too oversaturated. And that's, and you know, you got people who invested, they're not getting dividends yet. So that's where you're starting to see some problems and people can't pay their bills. But I think as this goes, especially past 2020, I think you'll see things open up and on the federal side, that would be the time to make an investment because now you just got larger pool to play in. But you I also have a new also, venture too. Yeah, so tell well, us. Well, I think it's also that this is a very important time. What, with what we've been talking about all around about quality and certificates of analysis and knowing exactly what what we've seen. It's a crowded marketplace right now, for sure. And we're going to see a lot of those early sloppy companies yeah. dropping it's away in this upcoming year. Exactly. And those that have gone a little bit slower and done their homework and are working on clinical trials and, you know, are, are appropriately backed and sourcing their products um, appropriately, those ones are going to survive. People overinvested. Uh, there was... You know, I mean, I, I think there's, I mean, I, I work and live in D.C., so there's, I, I see a lot of forces, like, I don't live in Colorado, I don't live in Colorado, I don't get sort of this green illusion. At some point, like, this whole notion that cannabis is medicine is going to, it's going to be tricky because we have one thing in this country called medicine. They're drugs, they're pharmaceutical drugs. There's one model to get there, and we have companies making million-dollar investments into making cannabis-based drugs for real medical conditions like MS, you know, cancer, etc. So those drugs are going to be proven with the cause-and-effect relationship for those conditions. And then you're going to have a bunch of stoners running around saying, this is for MS. And all of a sudden, the federal government's going to be like, wait, we got a problem on our hands. You know, and so something's, I think my prediction is the entire access to consumers is going to be all recreational. There'll be no more medicinal cannabis in the future. The government's going to say, if you want it to be federally legal, stop calling it a medicine unless you go through the IND process and get approved as a drug, period. I mean, in California, that kind of already happened. The fact that edibles have to be capped at 100 milligrams per um, package is example number one. It's, It's the writing is on the wall. Medical marijuana will end. The government sees it as that the camel's nose under the tent. You guys all were pretending it's medicine, but you really wanted it was recreational. But at the same time, there's going to be a group of people that take these products and, like you're talking about, play with the levels of THC and CBD and go through the clinical trial process and say, hey, look, for mild anxiety, you know, a product with this level is a prescription drug. And that's when we'll call it a medicine again. Well, I think you're going to see holistic, sorry, integrative, holistic health practitioners will continue to use it. I mean, they're the ones that are doing a lot of the cutting edge work anyway with non-traditional medicine. But what I'm saying is the the industry will no longer be able to say this is for X or this is for Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The industry will say, they'll say, here's the terpene level, here's the CBD level, here's the THC. The clinician will be the one who tells people. Well, I think there's the other part of the, the sector that we've touched upon, I mean, which has been my passion for 20 years, which is wellness and well-being. And I think most of this conversation, you know, we're still in the habit of, as you're saying, talking about medical, but what we're really talking about is people's access to things that make them feel well, right? And, and it comes along with your organic food and commitment to soil quality and going to the gym and living a healthier life and sleeping better at night so that you can go forward into your own life 
life and be a happier, healthier, more productive human being for the people around you. And that wellness, I think, is, is the true power um, that we're seeing with uh, CBD and, and cannabis. If you're looking to invest, do what any prudent investor would do. Look at the P.E. ratio, profits and earnings. If their company's not earning anything and it's all it's doing yeah. is a big stock market play and they're trying to, you know, get to the public markets and everybody's putting in ten dollars to get you know thousand shares and you got a fifty billion dollar market cap company well if it's not making any money it's high risk so calculate uh, pretty your much risk. nobody in california is making <laughs> any money i'm i mean i know a ton of manufacturers in california and everybody's losing money right now oh, i know that's what i'm saying so look at the, look what they're making because profits is what returns to that's what you wanted as an investor you want profit a very profitable company so we're talking about health wellness and we're going to end on that high note of wellness what do what makes you feel good thank you all for coming <laughs> you've been listening to a podcast by university of california television for more information about this program or uctv visit us online at uctv.tv